This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. What if you were Randall Monroe, creator of the webcomic XKCD? And what if someone asked you a question like this? What would happen if you tried to hit a baseball pitched at 90% of the speed of light? Now, this isn't actually a hypothetical question. Someone did ask it, and Randall found the answer using some math, physics, and back-of-the-envelope guesstimation. And, oh, yeah, a few comics. The answer to that and many other similarly zany queries is in his new book. It's called What If? Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. He joins me now to talk about it. Randall Monroe is the comic artist behind XKCD.com and a former NASA roboticist. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, it's great to be here. Randall, how does a NASA roboticist become a full-time comic artist? Well, doing robotics was pretty hard, um, and uh, the comics kind of blew up, and I people started ordering T-shirts and stuff, and I realized I didn't have time to do both. I had to pick one or the other, so I decided to try doing comics for a while. A lot more fun? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a lot easier to do comics about robots than it is to build robots that in some way incorporate comics. I can, I can understand that. How do you describe XKCD for people who aren't familiar with it? I usually say I draw stick figure comics, and there's a lot of math and stuff. And usually the either either their eyes glaze over or they say, oh, yeah, I've seen that. How did this What If project get started? Well, I found I, I do comics now and then about sort of science topics, these uh, weird scenarios. And people started emailing me questions, you know, like I'm having this discussion with my friend about how far could you run across lava before you died? And, you know... We figured you'd be the guy to settle this. And as soon as they asked the question, I couldn't not answer it. Like, I, I wanted to know. And so I would do a bunch of calculation and stuff. And then I'd, you know, send them back an email with the answer. And then at some point I was like, wow, I'm spending a lot of time researching these things that I'm just emailing off to someone and that may just get spam filtered or whatever. I should, like, I should make a website and, and ask for questions and then I'll uh, put up the answers. And, and so why hypothetical questions? What, what interests you about hypotheticals? Well, it was fun to explore sort of situations that are completely implausible, you know, like crashing the yeah. moon into the earth or yeah. whatever, because it it's fun for starters. But then also a lot of the time it ends up sort of taking you into exploring a bunch of weird questions or subjects that in in sort of real and practical science that you might not have thought about. You've been asking what-if questions for a long time. You start the book with an anecdote from your mom. <laughs> Tell us how that story goes. Yeah, um, I have no memory of this. I think I was you know, about five years old at the time. But when I started doing my what-if blog, my mom sent me a uh, clipping from a photo album she had found where she had written down a conversation she had with me where I came up to her and... I asked her, you know, are there more hard things or soft things in the world? And she said, well, you know, I don't know. That's kind of a strange question. I said, well, you know, let's try to, and I sort of tried to figure it out. And I was saying, well, there are, there are some pillows in each house and some magnets, right? And she's, well, yeah, I guess. And, you know, I sort of, and then I said a bunch of numbers, and I don't think any of the numbers really made any sense at all. <laughs> so, But you knew that pillows were the soft things and magnets were the yeah. hard things? And... Yeah, I think I said that every house has probably 
three or four pillows in it and about 15 magnets. And in this transcript, my mom is just saying, yeah, sure, that... Okay. And I said, okay, well, then there are probably about this many billion soft things in the world and this many billion hard things in the world. And and I have no idea where I got those numbers. But this but, is the kind of stuff you, you wondered about all the time as a kid, how, yeah. what the world is made <laughs> up and how do I figure it out on my own? Well, I really like the idea that math lets you sort of just take a bunch of things that you know and then put them together and with just a piece of paper or, you know, a calculator or a computer, you can come up with something really weird that you don't know, that you didn't know, you know? Mm. Here's a great question. I've, I've actually thought about this question myself when I was a kid. What if I took a swim in a typical spent nuclear fuel pool? How long could I stay safely at the surface? This one sort of surprised me. And what's really interesting is they use these, fuel, these uh, pools to shield the spent fuel so that the radiation is absorbed by the water and doesn't get out. And water is really good at absorbing radiation. And so when you're on the surface of one of these pools where there's the fuel at the bottom, if you sort of duck below the surface, you're assuming the water is is clean, you know, and that they're filtering it, there's no leaks anywhere. You're actually getting less radiation than you would on the surface or at home in your house mm-hmm. because the water so completely blocks the radiation from the fuel below you, and it also blocks the cosmic rays coming in from space above you. And so just under the surface of the pool, you're in theory safer than you would be walking around on the street. On the other hand, if you go just a little bit deeper the line between no measurable radiation dose at all and a an immediately fatal radiation dose is pretty narrow. So if you're going to have a pool party in uh, one of those uh, reactor pools, you definitely want to stay on the surface. You know, the, these are the kinds of questions when we were kids and well, not even adults now, they ask about comic book characters, you know, p- putting them in certain situations. What would Superman do if the <laughs> kryptonite were behind the thing and around the corner and... Yeah, and and I've actually, I've I've sort of imposed a moratorium. I get so many questions about infinitely powerful fictional characters fighting each other. (laughs) And so what if Superman fought the Hulk? What if the Hulk fought and they just run through the the gamut of every, and I've, I've gotten to know all these different characters that are, that are sort of in their individual mythos, infinitely powerful. I feel like that kind of question is, uh, is what the superhero comics industry exists to tackle. (laughs) Yeah. So you were interested to answer the question, what would happen if you pitched a baseball at 90% the speed of light? Yeah, that that turned out to be a fun one and took me through a lot of of interesting particle physics. What would happen? (laughs) Well, so the first thing I did to figure that out was the simple calculation of sort of how much energy is carried by this baseball. And it turns out to be the about equivalent to the energy of a mid-sized nuclear weapon. So I know that this is not going to end well for the batter and probably not for anyone else. And then I had to do a lot of sort of more careful calculation to figure out exactly what happens to the baseball. It moves from the pitcher's mound to home plate in the span of, I think, about 70 nanoseconds. And in that time, the batter has no warning because the signal does not go from the optic nerve to the batter's brain fast enough to warn them that this ball is coming. 
and the ball disintegrates and ignites nuclear fusion and uh, radiates this shell of x-rays and the whole thing vaporizes the batter and then vaporizes the pitcher and the stands and the stadium and probably a large chunk of the town that this uh, baseball stadium is wow, in. Yeah, I hate, I hate it when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I actually looked up, I tried to figure out what the rules of Major League Baseball say about this situation. Uh-huh. There are a little bit fuzzy. They haven't addressed this directly. But my guess is that the uh, batter would be considered hit by pitch and would be eligible to take first base. <laughs> some some of the questions uh, seem like dead ends. Let me, let me give you one of those. Uh, what would happen if everyone on Earth stood as close together as they could and jumped, everyone landing on the ground at the same time? How do you approach that question? Well, that one's actually been tackled by a couple of uh, different science writers. Because, and the problem with that was that if everyone jumps at the same time, you know, even gathered in one spot, they land back on the ground. There's a thump, you know, but then nothing really happens. And so I was sort of going to dismiss that and not answer that one. But then I got to thinking, you know, if you get, you gather everyone into one place and that takes up an area the size of Rhode Island, so let's say you've gathered them in Rhode Island and they all jump and nothing happens, then what happens next? You've just gathered the world's entire population into one, one place. So all of those people, you know, except the ones who are from Rhode Island, have to get home somehow. Yeah. And so I started looking at the capacity of all the airports around Rhode Island and the seaports and the roads and how many cars there are in Rhode Island and figured out that these people are not going to be able to get home before the food in Rhode Island runs out. And you would wind up a couple of weeks later with the most of the human population dead in Rhode Island. (laughs) Well, that's an interesting point because I would imagine that a lot of these questions that you get end in apocalyptic death somehow. Yeah, I I destroy the world pretty regularly in these questions. I occasionally like when I get a question where the the questioner is clearly excited about destroying the world somehow, and I find uh, an aspect of the question that is the most peaceful thing possible. So so let's get to the the nitty-gritty of what people are going to want to know from our interview, and that is... What's the weirdest question someone's <laughs> ever asked you? Oh, there have been there have been a couple of strange ones. I think my favorite was someone who asked, "If people had wheels and could fly, what would distinguish them from airplanes?" And I still don't know what to say to that. I also had someone write in and asked if it was possible to get your teeth so cold that drinking a cup of hot coffee would shatter them. And I have not been able to do any kind of thinking about that question because every time I imagine it, I just shudder. And I think I'm going to have nightmares about that. Do you get the, do you get the easy ones like which freezes faster in, in an ice cube tray, warm water or cold water? I do get questions that are clearly people trying to get me to do homework problems for them. <laughs> right. the, it'll be, you know, so what if I put a weight on an inclined plane at these degrees? How long would it take to roll to the bottom? And I'm like, nice try. you got to do that assignment. <laughs> hey, there's another person who's asked, what would happen if you made a periodic table out of cube-shaped bricks where each brick was made of the corresponding elements? Is there is any problem with doing that? 
yeah, this uh, this question actually I think was prompted by uh, a mention in a in a book about the elements. But I sort of took a look at it element by element and found that you could build a couple of the rows of the periodic table without dying, but it would rapidly get harder as you get further down the table. There are some pretty nasty elements at the top of the table. Um, fluorine is a gas that's incredibly uh, reactive. And so almost any other substance that you expose to fluorine will catch fire. And it's, of course, also you know toxic if you breathe it in and it burns your mm-hmm. skin. And that turns out to just be the start. Yeah, we're, we're, we're back to an apocalyptic ending again. Yeah, because further down the table, you get the things that are going to kill you so fast that you don't need to worry about the uh, fires from the fluorine and stuff. Mm. The first of those is really astatine, which is one of those elements where they don't actually know what it looks like because it's never been gathered in quantities large enough to really see. Any any collection of more than a few molecules of it gets so hot so quickly that it just looks like a burning blob. Mm. The chemist I talked to said that of astatine, that stuff just does not want to exist. So it would violently uh, explode enough that it would probably destroy your lab and be too big for you to, say, cover up, but then not big enough that it would just destroy the entire city and then there would be no authorities to report to. Yeah, and that's something to try at home in this case. No. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. With all these all these questions that you get, uh, do you have go-to sources you use to figure these things out? Are they researchers? You know, we have a stable of people that... Uh-oh, it's another phone call from that guy again. So I found one of the really useful sources turns out to be old military studies from the Cold War. Because when you're looking at sort of how materials behave in really weird, extreme circumstances that's kind of hard to investigate, sometimes the only people who really had the incentive to look into this were people working on bizarre Cold War projects. So if you want to know like how, some, how a person's face would respond to Mach 2 winds, you know, it turns out that engineers for the Air Force were worried about ejecting from supersonic vehicles. So they set up wind tunnels and rocket sleds. And there are videos and uh, some old, these old Xerox papers about, you know, the response of different parts of the body to these conditions. And so I'll often find myself buried deep in these ancient papers that have been photocopied like 50 times and are almost unreadable. And they all have like declassified stamped at the top. One of my favorite uh, questions asks... What will Times Square look like in a million years? Do you know what's in store for us? Yeah, I I don't even know where I'm going for dinner tonight. So I feel like I have no idea what we'll be doing in a million years. And so with that question, I I didn't want to worry about where people would be. Because, you know, our civilizations tend to rise and fall on the scale of, of millennia. And maybe we will you know, in the coming coming millennia, leave Earth and become this galaxy-spanning civilization, or maybe we'll all go extinct in 50 years for some reason or another. And so I don't really have any idea what's going to happen to us. Mm-hmm. But no matter what we do, we've altered the Earth in some really interesting ways. And so one of the really sort of odd legacies that we'll leave is we'll have this uh, layer of all of these plastics and polymers that we've created that are really durable. 
And if you're an alien archaeologist or, you know, coming back and looking at the Earth uh, in a million years, it's possible the only trace of us is going to be this layer of sort of the the rubber from our tires and all of these uh, plastics that we mm. dug up and processed and that we've laid down and that that's going to long outlast any of our buildings or anything else. Do people, when you, when you, when you make these predictions, do people take it seriously enough that they, they fact check you? Yeah. Um, one of the first articles I did, the one about the baseball, I actually got a letter from someone who said, hey, I, uh, I'm at the MIT, an MIT high energy physics lab and your article went around and we really liked it. And so I just wanted you to know I ran some uh, simulations on our machines here and I have a few you know, corrections. And I thought that was so cool. It's a compliment, actually, I think, if someone thinks enough about your stuff to want to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. I want, we've run out of time. I'd like to thank you, Randall Monroe. Yeah, well, thank you. You're welcome. Randall Monroe is the author of the new book, What If? Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. He's also the creator of the XKCD web comic. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. And you can read an excerpt from What If? That's on our website at sciencefriday.com slash what if.